This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 294th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is one of the most respected actresses of her generation. She is an Oscar and Tony nominee and two-time Emmy winner, who this year is poised to pick up her third Emmy, this time in the category of Best Supporting Actress in a Limited Series or TV Movie, for her work on HBO's Sharp Objects. The New York Times has said, quote, her performances stand out in current American film like crisp martinis in a soda fountain, close quote. And The Guardian has said, quote, if she didn't exist, Tennessee Williams would have had to invent her, close quote. The great. Patricia Clarkson. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 59-year-old and I discuss why she decided very early in her life to forego having a husband or children and focus singularly on acting, why for the first decade or so of her screen career, she was typecast in suburban mom-type roles, and how Lisa Cholodenko's 1998 directorial debut, High Art, enabled her, at the age of 38, to break out of that box and how she became a queen of the art house in films such as 2002's Far From Heaven, 2003's The Station Agent, and Pieces of April, 2005's Good Night and Good Luck, 2007's Lars and the Real Girl, 2008's Elegy, 2009's Cairo Time, and 2014's Learning to Drive, while often taking brief excursions back to the theater, such as a 2004 Kennedy Center revival of A Streetcar Named Desire and a 2014 Broadway revival of The Elephant Man, and to TV with memorable parts on HBO's Six Feet Under and Netflix's House of Cards, not to mention Sharp Objects, for which she has already won a Golden Globe. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Patricia Clarkson, <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. Great to see you again. I'm so happy, I, but I realized I could have worn my pajamas. <laughs> yeah, right. This is an I, unusual thing. I just thing. want your listeners to know I have on lipstick and a high heels. You look great. And a high cut dress. Absolutely. Okay. Well, at least we get, we get to enjoy <laughs> it in the room. painting a visual. Yes. Well, it's great to be with you, and we always begin on this podcast with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in the great city of New Orleans. My mother was a housewife at the beginning of our lives, and then she sold real estate, and through that she then ran, eventually, ultimately, ran the city of New Orleans. She was president of the city council under two mayors. One's in jail, and the other is Michelangelo. <laughs> but she's still free. <laughs> but she's a very free, and she's a remarkable powerhouse of a woman. Yeah. My father ran a children's home, and then he worked as an administrator for LSU Medical School. He has a master's in public health. Very impressive, folks. So. And I wonder, for you, what brought about the interest in acting. I was seeing things that you were reading, you know, biographies of Sarah Bernhardt and Eleanor yeah. Dews and all kinds of yeah, stuff that yeah. probably Ellen not. Tracy. Yeah. But yeah. then there was Ellen kind, Terry. Of, God. kind of a competition aspect as well that entered the picture, right? Well, I took a speech class in eighth grade, Mrs. Morrison, 
and we had to give speeches and I kind of performed them and she said you're an actress and you need to join the drama club and I did and did these great plays and really it gave me finally I think the outlet I had been craving for so long a release a, a means of expression I was a very emotional child and my mother was like, oh, thank God. Yes, please act. <laughs> well, I think we left out a, a key detail here, which might have something to do with why you didn't dislike attention. How many Clarkson children were there? I am the baby of five girls, baby. Okay. baby. I am the youngest of five, and my sisters always say, why do you have to say you're the youngest? <laughs> I say, because I am. <laughs> That's a key fact. So the name of the teacher that you just described, can you say that again? Ms. Morrison. So who was Ms. I'm not even going to try this. Oh, I-S-T-R-E. No, that's, yeah. that's so Cajun. Miss <laughs> Morrison was junior high. Then mm-hmm. I went off to high school. High school uh, started in 10th grade. So in 10th grade, I went to O. Perry Walker. And Miss Ethel East was the, and she was kind of a looming figure. It was a big deal if you were an actor to go to O. Perry Walker and have Miss East cast you in your first play. And she really took me under her wing, and we did remarkable things. She really laid the groundwork that would carry me through the rest of my life, and I'm thankful. And your mom told a publication at one point, quote, she came home one day after she was on stage the first time in ninth grade, and she said, I know what I want to be. I want to be a star, close oh, quote. Do you remember that feeling? I don't think feeling? I said that, no. <laughs> Let's get I was her in ninth line. grade. Where is she? I was like, get my mother. <laughs> yeah. I was in ninth grade. I might have right. said, I want to star in, in something. something. Right, right, right. But I don't, because I don't think I ever really aspired for that as much as I really, because I wasn't at that time aspiring to be a, a movie actress or a TV actress. I really wanted to be a theater actress. I was in love with the theater. And what exposure to theater did you have in New Orleans? Well, I did plays, but so I but li- and I would go to see the community theater, like the you know little theater, our famous little theater. It's one of the old, oldest community theaters in our country, and so I would go to see plays there. But I did plays my whole three years of high school, many plays, mm-hmm. and um, and you were. At that time, were you already the standout? Were you getting the leads? Well, or were yes. You? I mean, I remember she cast me in 10th grade over a senior in this part, and it was a very big moment in my life. I was new to O. Perry Walker, and she cast me instead of a senior in a part, and it was like, oh, I had to play a, a young girl who got kidnapped. <laughs> and then I went on to do, you know, Neil Simon, you know, and fun things, and then also really kind of daring and bold things, yeah. like Ionesco's The Chair. Is So Miss East really understood everything. You know, she knew how to satisfy all of the, you know, just the differences of, of people at the school. So in 1978, you go off and start at LSU. 77, uh, yeah. 77. Yeah. But in 1980, I believe, you wind up at Fordham, yes, going to the I... Big Apple. Why was there that change? Well, LSU is a marvelous school. I just, there was a longing. I had a longing to be really out of New Orleans. I had a longing to be in New York, you know, king and queen of the theater scene. I longed to be in the heart of theater. And I ended up at Fordham. First of all, my parents could afford it. You know, they were middle class and New York is so expensive. But 
my aunt, uh, my lovely, beautiful aunt, was dean of admissions of Loyola in New Orleans. And she said, wait, well, let me connect you to Fordham and your grades are good from LSU. And, and you might be, you know, be able to get you a little scholarship money. And I ended up Fordham. And that was the best decision I ever made my whole life. There you could have a theater degree. I graduated with a theater degree and I now have an from there as from well. Fordham. That's I awesome. I just got it. Just this past May, I got an honorary Well, in, in between Father your... Father chain that I worship, <laughs> um, who runs the school. Yeah. So, well, so, okay, you wrap up at Fordham. So I go to Fordham, I meet Joe Jezeski, my other mentor. He was extraordinary. I do plays there for the yeah. two years there. I'm, I'm totally immersed in the theater scene. I do Hedda Gabler. I do Betrayal. I do... <laughs> and then I graduate, and then I apply to Yale, and I get into Yale School Yale of School Drama. Yale School Drama. Can you just... Tell our listeners how many people are in a class there. How many people get accepted well, the in a year, given year? Well, the year when I was there, yeah. <laughs> talk about hashtag me too, <laughs> they accepted 10 men and 6 women. Oh, okay. So, yes. Did I anyone was, else from that class really go on to big yeah, things? I mean, Dylan Baker, yeah. Chris Noth, Jane Atkinson. Oh, wow. Oh, there's and it's great directors, Evan Yanoulis, Michael Engler, Richard Greenberg, great playwright. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing, though, of those years, three-year program, MFA program, but you have said on the one hand, they were incredibly grueling. On the other hand, they confirmed to you for sure that this is what you wanted to do. So that sounds almost masochistic that you, it was a grind, but you liked it. Well, I did. I mean, Yale was, it was the toughest three years I've probably ever had, but I think the fortitude that was required, it built a steel frame within me to be able to weather this industry. And even though it is not a school that caters to stardom, and we didn't even study any kind of movie acting or or TV, no screen acting of any kind, it still was formidable. It was true. It simply made you a better actor. And you said, I think the variety of opportunities was You would do everything. He would cast you against type. You would do occasionally the young leading lady or the ingenue. But then I would do like the bod in Pericles or I would play some, you know, 300 pound Cajun mama or an eight year old (laughs) murderer. I'm not kidding. Tap, tap, tap. I mean, I had to sing. I don't. I had to sing. I had to do Pacific Overtures. I had to sing two parts. Oh, my God. I was required to do things I never dreamt. But I guess after that, nothing's going to really scare you or rattle you if you... No. Well, I mean, yeah, Yeah. but I think it continued. I was fortunate to have these incredible mentors that laid a foundation for me that just started to get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper till finally at 25 I entered the industry I was gonna say ready to go now it's like all right you graduate from Yale in 85 and now it's into the real world and what looks kind of to be the case is that quicker than most you were starting in 86 you were replacing Julie Haggerty on Broadway your first year out in the world House of Blue Leaves and it's funny because that of all you know, crazy things came up on our episode that immediately precedes yours because Ben Stiller, I believe, was oh, also in it. Man. I think I, that yes, was his ben. first thing as well. I know. He do, was so cute. Oh do you my remember God. him doing He says that, was that John Mahoney was John also? John Mahoney. When I started, John Mahoney, Swoozie Kurtz, and Stalker Channing. And then eventually Stalker had left when I was there and Christine Baranski took over. So Ben is going to the Emmys at the same one that you're not. You're both nominated together. Yes. And he says the only reason he's there as a director was because during the making of House of Blue Leaves, what he would do, I guess, between acts or whatever, 
he got Mahoney to sort of play a character and he would film him and it made him fall in love with directing. I don't know if you even noticed that at the time. I, but. Well, I knew Ben was a director, was ultimately, you know, I didn't know he was doing that with John. Right. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been in movies a lot sooner, yeah. <laughs> I could have been in movies with John Mahoney, right, the great right. John Mahoney. Right. In terms of movies, though, that also wasn't much longer because the very mm. first screen role was a year after... You started in House of Blue Leaves. So in 87, Brian De Palma, The Untouchables, you're playing pregnant Mrs. Elliot Ness. <laughs> Elliot Ness, everybody will remember, is Kevin Costner, yeah. who was about as hot as probably in multiple perspectives, but certainly in terms of his standing in the business as he's ever been in 80, you know, coming off of one, two, he, three things. Well, he came off Fandango right. and then... Well, he was Silverado, just rising. Like, I mean, he yeah. was in Silverado. He yeah. was right. I mean, my sisters were beside themselves. My mother was like, Kevin, Kevin Costner. How do I know that name? Where is that? I was like, Mom, he's like this hot guy. And he's really lovely. He's a big star. She was like, OK. And then when she met him on the set, she was like, oh, my God. She got it. It's like he's Gary Cooper. <laughs> That's a good comparison. Well, so. Now your job for the first time is to act for a camera, which is a totally different skill set. Yes. And... Well, I'd done an episode of Spencer for hire. Okay. Well, so, all right. That was your (laughs) dipping the toe in the water. I had done a... And, oh, Robert Urich. Couldn't believe I'd never done anything. He thought everybody on the crew was pulling his leg, but I'd never... (laughs) been in front of camera. I was playing a murderer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did something right, though, on the untouchables because they kept you around a lot longer than you were supposed to. Well, Brian did that incredible thing. I was broke off my (laughs) you-know-what. And I was supposed to shoot for like two weeks or something, and then Brian said, well, you know what? We need Miss Ness. We need her in the courtroom. And he said, you know, Paramount, hate to say it, but you're just going to have to pay her for her. You're going to have to hold on to her for another month. It was the kindest thing. You think he did it as a favor? Yeah. Well, I think they could have easily dropped me. He was like, you know, we can't drop and pick her. You're just going to have to pay her for the month. I mean, I was making scale or something. But still, that was a fortune to me, a a fortune. And it saved me because, you know, I was really wasn't making a whole heck of a lot of money. And he just did the nicest thing. I, I, I'm forever and always thankful to him. Well, in the years immediately after that, there was an interesting thing that developed, I think, which let me read back to you a quote that you said, which was, quote, I was somewhat typecast as suburban mom-type roles early on. I've always had this deep voice, so I think it was tough sometimes for directors to cast me as the ingenue. I sort of grew into my voice, my face, my body as I got older. And then there was another great quote, which I've got to put in here as well. Quote, I did a lot of supporting characters, a lot of wives. I've cooked a lot of dinners on screen. I've chopped a lot of vegetables, close quote. So it's kind of ironic because you have always said that in reality, being a housewife, being a mom... That wasn't, you know, in the way people sort of sometimes assume that that's, oh, women must want that. You were focused singularly from the beginning, right? I was. I knew at a very early age that I was not meant for a conventional life, marriage, children. I just knew it in my heart and soul, I think. And I have very cool parents, even though, you know, they are Southern, but they're not in any way... They're somewhat old-fashioned, but they're not, you know, conservative or strict. And so I think they understood my desire to be a career girl. And yet 
knowing how I'm going to kind of live my life, but then suddenly I'm playing my sisters constant. I've, I've played my sisters on screen. Who I'm are all so married ma- with kids? Married yeah. with children yeah. and beautiful, but they have huge careers. They've been housewives, of course, and raised their children. And they've raised beautiful children, but they've also formidable women. Right. They have worked, had extraordinary jobs. But I ended up, I said, oh my God. I'm in this alternate universe. I, I have, like, somebody's placed me with children. Do you and, think it was and, something about the way you looked? or what Yes, was it? I think it had to do with some of that. I think people thought I looked like everybody's mom. or Wholesome, something. whatever, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> if yeah. only they knew. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Like I said, I have right. a high-slit dress yeah. on. No. <laughs> and red shoes. You've, you've been nude in movies more than anyone, oh, probably. No, I have yeah. not. <laughs> I have not been that naked. Well, it's I've been a little bit naked. Yeah, a little bit. As I got older, what was I thinking? No, why not? Get it in a few. I was naked young. Well, Um, yeah. (laughs) But I guess the point I just wanted to make is that The Untouchables was 87. Yes. And for the next 11 years, it's not that you weren't doing great work in the opportunities you were given or whatever, but the first person to really have some imagination about what you could do would have been a first-time director who is known as Elisa Cholodenko. We now know her probably maybe more recently for The Kids Are All Right. But in this case, she wanted you to play Greta, a heroin-addicted lesbian German actress (laughs) who is the muse of a photographer, played by Ali Sheedy, in high art. You were 38, which is probably later than usual for a breakout role, but this was that. You got a Spirit Award nomination, and it sort of really changed the way people looked at you and felt you know, as far as what you were capable of. What did she see and how did that change things? Well, it was interesting how it happened is I was in Los Angeles and I got sent the script and I said, I really, you know, sadly I'm not lesbian, I'm not German (laughs) and I've never even smoked pot. (laughs) But I get this character. I understand something about this character. And so I flew back to meet with her. She had someone in mind. She had someone already in mind to cast And my agent at the time said, you just need to get back because she's going to make a decision. Shooting starts soon. So I flew in. I flew back from L.A. And thank God my former roommate had a German agent, so her voice was always in my ear. And I just walked in. I said, oh, my God, they're going to see, what is this suburban lady walking (laughs) in? But I knew, I understood it. But, you know, Lisa's brilliant, and she's a one of the great directors. And I'm, you know, again, forever thankful. She saw that I I had it in me and that the emotional life of Greta somehow lived inside me. And she cast me that day, yeah, wow. that night she called. And know. pretty quickly, other people expanded their imaginations about yes, what you could do because yes. I want to just touch it. You've had so many great performances, but let's just touch on a few of the ones that listeners will immediately remember. The Sick Wife in Frank Darabont's The Green Mile, which was nominated for the Best Picture Oscar just a year after High Art. I know, to go from Greta to yeah. Dying Lady. Anything that stands out when you think about that one? You know, it was a dream to shoot that film because, you know, you had, I loved working with Frank Darabont. I loved you know, Tom Hanks, although my scene really was with, you know, the great Michael Clark Duncan, who, of course, left us way too soon. It's very sad. He was one of the truly loveliest men I've 
ever met. And, you know, but that that scene, it all came, that was all very true because I really, really cared for him as a man first. And then I, you know, knew him as an actor, but I got to know him as this remarkable, remarkable man. So, Just a few years after that, 2002, you won the Best Supporting Actress National Society of Film Critics and New York Film Critics Circle Awards <laughs> for playing Eleanor, the neighbor and best friend of a married white woman who falls in love with a black man in the mm. 50s suburbia. That was Julianne Moore yeah. as the friend of yours. Yeah. You were kind of, uh, uh, and, and this was Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven, one of the great movies, and that was a great year of a lot of, a lot of great stuff, but you stood out. Why did that one go so well? Well, you know, Todd is masterful, and you had Julianne Moore leading this cast, and Dennis, and Dennis, and the great production design. I mean, that movie is a work of art, and I was just fortunate to be a part of it, and it was a tough character. One of the first real tough characters I had to take on, but Julianne and I get on, and we're very similar in that, you know, it's all about the work. We're not fussy, and we don't want to know how we're feeling or what we had for breakfast. Let's just shoot. Right. It's funny. <laughs> Did you guys, I, you and I just saw each other in Carlo Vivari in the Czech Republic. She had been the opening night honoree, and you were I, the closing night. I was the closing I, night. You didn't overlap, did you, at all? <laughs> no, we didn't, And you know, but it was still yummy to be at yeah. the festival yeah, to, yeah. for us to share that honor, you know. Okay, so then we get to 2003, and this is insane because starting at Sundance in January, yeah, I got to like catch my breath before I go through all this. You came in there. I'm still recovering. Still recovering. 2003. Four Sundance (laughs) movies at Sundance. I don't think anyone's ever had that many. Somebody has. And as a result of how good you were in all of them, you left with a special jury prize for your work. And let's just go through one by one. I'm going to. List what they are, and then I'm going to ask you some, but just bear with me. An artist grieving over the unexpected passing of her young son, who uh, this artist subsequently separated from her husband, and now befriends a dwarf in the station agent. Tom McCarthy's directorial debut made for just a half million dollars. He would go on and direct the Best Picture winner, Spotlight. A mother of a kid who is falling in love with in David Gordon Green's All the Real Girls. A mother dying of breast cancer who on Thanksgiving visits her daughter from whom she has been estranged in Peter Hedges' directorial debut, Pieces of April, a movie made for less than a half million dollars as well. And then there was a fourth at Sundance as well. But those were the ones that really a got a release. Film I did called yeah. The Baroness and the Pig. Yes. Beautiful little film. No, it was... Like I said, see, it's just exhausting even for you to say. Yeah, it's crazy. Did they just all so happen to imagine. come out at the same time, or you really had well, a cluster of shooting? Well, all the real girls opened, I think, first. And then it was the mad summer of Pieces of April and Station Asian coming out together. And it was mayhem because, you know, I had a lot of critics or a lot of, so I was National Board of Review. And National Society of Film Critics. National Society and then all these others. And it was an embarrassment of riches. I was, was uh, you know, it was crazy. But let's stay with Sundance for a minute because that was the beginning mm -hmm. of the year. Just having them all click at the same time there. I mean, Pieces of April is the one that you would eventually get the Oscar nomination for. But as you Mm -hmm. referenced, I just want to, mention here station agent and piece of april together you were jointly recognized for them for with national board review and national society of film critics best supporting actress sag nomination for best actress for the station agent 
and Best Supporting Actress at that same SAG Awards for Pieces of April. No, they asked me, I remember I had Best Actress, Best Supporting, and Best Ensemble. And they said, do you want to present? I said, no. no that's enough. <laughs> I mean, no. Uh, and then, yeah, as we said, Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars for Pieces of April. One of the things, though, I mean, I guess before we go any further, Pieces of April, because that is certainly one that's going to always be very closely associated with you. Katie Holmes is the daughter. You're the mm-hmm. sick mother. Did you realize in the doing of that 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 was going to be special? Um, I knew it was emotionally fertile. I knew it was deeply personal. I got to know Peter Hedges quite well, of course, doing this. This film meant so much to him. And the way he approached the film, approached us as actors, every day, it wasn't that every day was precious, but our time was and... We had to really be focused, emotionally available, ready to go, because he had to shoot this film. There was an urgency in him and in his heart for this film, and I found that very moving, and I still remember those days of him on the set. Was there a scene you got the most feedback about from that movie? Was there a scene from that movie? I don't—you know, it's funny— There were several, but I think everybody said it was so devastating. You don't even see my face was that hug in the doorway of Katie. Everybody said it was Katie's moment, but everybody just said it was devastating. And I was just thrilled for Peter and for everybody involved in the film that it had such a life. Yeah. Post-Sundance, you also had another film that year that is one of my all-time favorites, but it's also one of the all-time weirdest movies ever, right? What was that? Uh, And that is Dogville (laughs) for Lars Montreux, which basically is a movie without sets. You're playing a woman who clashes with Nicole Kidman's character. It's a very bizarre, you know, there's a a dog, but we don't see the dog, but we hear the bark. I mean, it's a insane thing, but it's sort of like theater, right? It's an avant-garde piece. It's, yeah. it's you know, Lars von Trier. Right. But I told you what my father said. Because <laughs> it was, the whole set was just, we had no physical building right, or right. we just had, chalk. it was all etched out on yeah. a stage and we'd mime, you know, everything. And my father saw the film and he was like, Patty. I think you needed doors. <laughs> needed doors. Yeah. It was hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around that one. But it was pretty cool. One last note about that crazy season. The late Harvey Weinstein, you guys bucked heads, not over sexual stuff, but he was a bully in other ways. And you got the better of him in this one. Can you share no, what the award no. season was? Well, it was tough. And it was tough is that he really wanted me to go in supporting on station agent to get out of the but way. I was in supporting for pieces of April right. and Bingham Ray the great late Bingham Ray had already started a campaign and you know I said Harvey I'm the leading lady of station agent this is I think false I'm the only gal I'm there it's my like it's Peter's movie but it's like I'm the leading lady with these two extraordinary actors mm-hmm. and it was a tussle. It was a tough, tough time. So he didn't time. really give, but the voters overruled him, right? Was that well, basically the story? It, well, he eventually 
put me in, you know, but he didn't do any campaign right. or anything for and me. I still got nominated for SAG, yeah. which I think was shocking. And still, I'm. it's one of my proudest moments well, because yeah. something happened. But it was tough. It was tough. It caused strife and that was not needed. These were beautiful films. I mean, who in their mind has these two gorgeous films? I remember when I won the National Board of Review for both of them. And I said, I'm here tonight with these two films for less than a million dollars together. And I remember Morgan Freeman standing up and clapping to me. I mean, it was such a celebratory time, and he was just adamant that I go into the wrong category. And I think the Academy is really starting to try to be truthful about that, and I think that's important. Well, this was really, you were at the heart of the... But he was tough. Harvey was tough. But we, you know, I saw him later after that, and, you know, he was fine. But what other people have suffered with him is... Mine was just a battle of spirit, not a, you know... I believe that your first experience doing sort of multiple episodes of something with HBO was shortly after that and that was six feet under you kind of popped in and out over a couple of years as the sister I thought I was a regular it was very flattering I, went, yeah. I mean I, I, I just kind of get a call from them and say hey Patty can you come shoot on you know the week of February 12th I'd be like okay but you had always <laughs> resisted TV you had had mm-hmm. once a Stephen Bochco thing but you yeah. basically in the same way that you don't want to be tied down with a husband or uh, yeah, kids or no. whatever. You just... I, can't, I couldn't do marriage right. or TV. <laughs> <laughs> but because sometimes like series TV, you Back usually... then wasn't... Seven-year commitment, right, or yes, something? Yes, it was... Yes, a six-year a six commitment. But yeah. this was nice to basically play the the hippie sister of Francis Conroy's character. Yeah, come you on. come in and out. You got a, two Emmys. Yes, I did. That's nice. <laughs> and then, you know, I... I really feel bad for about the the next few people you had to work with in movies george clooney i know cast you to play the I, wife I, of I, robert downey so jr unfortunate. That's so unfortunate. <laughs> this was a real person shirley worshba a cbs news writer who was secretly married to another cbs news yeah. writer in order to circumvent network rules during the mccarthy era this is the movie good night and good luck best picture nomination again yeah. i think you'd worked with George a few years George earlier. had produced Welcome to Collinwood, yeah. this cool little film that the Russo brothers... Uh, please, yeah. Yeah. Uh, please. Um, <laughs> don't they own Hollywood that, now? A, uh, yeah. And I knew them when, in yeah. in Cleveland, baby, <laughs> and in a van. Uh, You're a big fan of George. Having oh, not George. not based on the things that others are, but like, well, those two. But well, like, George is, he was good you know, to work he's with. He's the consummate man in Hollywood in that he has talent and vision and kindness, and he has them in in equal parts. And he's genuinely altruistic. He's genuinely has a, a caring eye and soul. And then he just is a a, a real true movie star and. Uh, it, it was, but I loved working on that film because it was a real collective. It was, it was, we'd show up every day because we were always sometimes in the back room. So every day we were on the set and it felt a little like theater again to me. And um, it was exciting. This whole like night they built that set. It was a, like we'd kind of arrive in our, you know, 20th century garb and then we'd enter this world for 10 hours yeah. and be done. Well, he said, we had him on this podcast a few months ago, and he said that 50 years from now, if they taught a class on him or something, and they could only show one movie, that's the one he would want, because it just sort of is the summation of not only filmmaking, that the type of filmmaking he was, he's proudest to do, but also symbolically the message that was, 
coming during the breakout of the Iraq war, basically. And it was sort of saying, you know, you do have to question your government, even if you take crap for it. And that was so that was a great one. Your next big one, uh, another really tough job to have to work with Ryan Gosling as a shrink. Again, unfortunately. Yes. uh, (laughs) Lars and the Real Girl, which is a great little indie. And then. Yeah, he was so he was so brilliant as that character. And it made my job so easy because he was so truthful and as, so, a, as a man in love with a sex well, doll. Well, and and he helped me find the reality in that sex doll. <laughs> uh, he helped me through his. It was osmosis. It was it just transferred. I I we started to really that 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 doll became so real to all of mm-hmm. us through his eyes. Yeah, oh, it's a great yeah. great performance in a movie for. But the the beginning of something kind of interesting in your career, I guess, let me preface it this way. I, fr- I looked at looked back and realized the first time I met and interviewed you was along with Ben Kingsley, Penelope Cruz, and Dennis Hopper at the Gotham Awards in 2008 or nine, thanks to a movie called Elegy, oh, yeah. which was adapted yeah. from a Philip Roth novel of the same name. And this was your first time working with the Spanish director, Isabel Quachette, and with Ben Kingsley, you guys would all reunite a few years later on Learning to Drive. Why was that a relationship with the three of you that really seemed to click? We just got on. I I did not know Sir Ben, and I, um, (laughs) the first, I, I met him for a drink the night before we started shooting, and I had to start with the sex scene. But he said, you know, you know, Patricia, you know, acting brings brings familiarity. <laughs> I was like, okay. okay. <laughs> so the next day, I was naked. I spent the day naked with Sir Ben. Sir ben. I mean, who wouldn't mind? <laughs> but but it was, what a beginning yes. uh, to the film. But Isabel, I fell in love with Isabel the second I met her. And she's a truly learned, brilliant, inspiring woman a woman that has, again, real vision and taste. And it was fortunate that we could all come back together to do this project, Learning to Drive, that was so personal to me, that was so important to me. And that was something that took a few years to get, you know, back you guys, I think six years to get back together. But that one, Learning to Drive, was, was important to you because I think in some ways one of the few times you'd been able to, you'd been given the chance to be the centerpiece of a movie, right? And I, well, I loved the, I loved Katha Pollitt. I loved the essay. Again, I, the, the emotional life of Wendy sat, just sat in me, even though I don't live, never lived that life. Right. And I liked the story of a woman who's not getting her groove back. This woman had more groove than you could. She had a phenomenal job. She was living her life, you know, as a writer, a journalist. She she had a fabulous husband. She had a beautiful daughter, a remarkable life, but she, she failed to look up. She failed to take it in, and so her life left her. And so it's not about a woman finding her own, even though there's the metaphor of her learning to drive. It's about a woman actually coming back to really who she is and always has been and and actually able to to really engage in a purposeful life, a life that has love 
and meaning as opposed to just herself. Yeah. In between those two, you had quite a run with the New York filmmaking legends. Let's say Woody Allen's Vicky Cristina Barcelona in 2008 and Whatever Works in 2009 and Scorsese's Shutter Island in 2010. That's, no, uh, I worked with them to simultaneously. I had to leave. Woody let me go from the set of Whatever Works to go shoot Shutter, Shutter Island. Island. Which, by the way, <laughs> and, Scor- and I remember Woody saying, "Say hi to Marty for me." <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it's you know not necessarily the size of the part that matters to you, right? Because it, first of all, Scorsese no. said that the scene with you in the cave with Leo mm-hmm. DiCaprio, Leo. another. Yeah. Uh, what he said that quote that was probably the scene that when I read the script made me want to make the film close quote. Mm-hmm. So just you know at that point you've been in your you've been active in films for over twenty years. But do you still get a little intimidated? Yes. By people like that. Well, Woody, I wasn't second time because I'd done Vicky Christina, right. and I I liked the way he, I'm I'm an improvisational person, and I don't think people realize that that's how Woody used to work is. A lot of improv, you know, free, loose, and but and so is Scorsese. I mean, you know, you get on that set and you better be ready to yeah. rock and roll, mm-hmm. and you better not have anything too tied down, and you have to play, which is quite beautiful, I think, as actors. And he and Leo had already made a few together, oh, so going back and to so like they gangs. Have, yeah, you know, they have a, a secret language. It's you know they. They can complete each other's sentences. So I walked into this, these, you know, these towering figures, but they aren't. You know, Leo is a wonderful, you know, remarkable actor, and everything you think he is is exactly right in front of you. And Marty lives for actors. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had mentioned learning to drive in 2014 as one of your first central. You know parts, but I overlooked the, I think the first one, which was a great one in 2009. A very it was a bit of a low profile movie with a Canadian director, oh. but this you're playing a Canadian woman yeah. happily married also to a diplomat has an affair with an Egyptian man while awaiting her husband's return. Well, a chaste, a chaste, yes, affair in Cairo, and this is called Cairo Time. A really Good one. You're in every single frame of the movie. It sort of reminded me of Brief Encounter, which yes. was a great. It was compared often to that. Um, but just that one. To had you sort of always longed to play the essentially the lead of a movie? Well, I Juliet. I don't think is necessarily who I am. You know, externally in everyday life, I'm more outgoing, gregarious. Pain in the ass, <laughs> but can we say that? <laughs> you can say whatever you want. Um, and but Juliet is a quiet, soulful, introspective, genuinely lovely woman, and <laughs> that was a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved in. every minute of it because yeah. I had to kind of, I I didn't have, I couldn't change anything externally I had to change something so deep within me I had to take all of all of my agita and all of my um because I had to relax my extremities I had to let my body just sit and that's very hard (laughs) (laughs) well uh, I think the same year you were able to play a very different 
pitched character in a short film for Saturday Night Live. This was the sequel, in a way, to Dick in a Box. It was called Mother Lover, reuniting Andy Samberg and Justin Timberlake, and you were the mother that they wanted to love. Me and Susan. Yes. Come on, baby. Yes, you and Susan. I That's got right. a call, and I said, well, what, what, what am I doing in this video? <laughs> well, come on, you're just, you know, they're trading off mothers. I said, oh, okay. And we, turns out, of course, had the time of our lives, and they were, it was, I mean, they shoot them in a day. Yeah. They edit them that night, and they air. <laughs> like, we shot it on a Friday. Mm-hmm. They they edit all through the night, and it aired Saturday, Saturday night on, you know, SNL. Did that bring in a whole new fan yeah, base? Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I haven't even... Someone told me once, it's like, it's the most viewed, I mean, other than Dick and a Bob. Yeah, I mean, right. it's... And my mother was like, Patty, <laughs> did you, you did some video of, like, that man with... Some with his his you know with his private parts in a box and then you came. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to explain that one. Yeah. She said you didn't. You you. I said, mother, it's just it's just a big fun video on SNL. I said it's got a lot of hits. She goes, oh good. <laughs> oh, in that case. Um, and just one other one that I want to mention it from that era a year later, 2010. You and your frequent co-star, Stanley Tucci, as the parents of Emma Stone and Easy A, which has its own very oh demographically oh uh, different but big following. And the gorgeous Emma Stone right. that we, of course, saw a star in the making it right in front of our eyes. We were all like, oh, my God. <laughs> she was breathtaking and, and yummy and uh, so uh, infinitely talented. And But Stanley and I just, you know, were able to come together and have... We're longtime friends. I used to date one of his dearest friends. So we we, we played. Yeah. You know, Will let us play. And uh, it was joyous. Okay, so I saw you perform live only once because this was when you came back to Broadway after 25 years away. No, not 25, because I had done Streetcar. But off, not on Broadway. No, that was in I, DC, right, you're right? right. I hadn't been on Broadway. Sorry. No, so I'd, been, I'd done theater, but yeah, I hadn't been. Yeah, on, no, and I'm definitely going to ask you about Streetcar because okay, you're. But I hadn't uh, been Blanche's. on. I hadn't been on. I hadn't been on a Broadway stage in 25 yeah. years. So literally from Eastern Standard in 1989 to The Elephant Man in 2014, as Mrs. Kendall, the caretaker of the title character, played by Bradley Cooper, Tony nomination and mm-hmm. a lot of uh, <laughs> accolades, and just though that. That's an intense one, right? It is. And and I really didn't want to go back to the theater. But, you know, Bradley, I met Bradley, I think it was the premiere of Whatever Works or something. And he said, he came up to me. I didn't know him. And he came up to me and he said, if, he goes, no, when I do The Elephant Man, I want you to play Mrs. Kendall. Hmm. I said, okay. (laughs) Like, you know, this is never going to happen. Happened. And then I got a text. You, me, Williamstown, Mrs. Kendall. I, was like, I, I still wasn't, I was frightened to be back on stage. I hadn't gone, been on stage since Blanche. Blanche just about, you know, it, 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 I thought, oh, I'm done after Blanche. <laughs> I think a lot of people do Blanche. They say, oh, I'm done. Right. And so I, I don't know, but it was turned out to be one of the most glorious experiences of my entire career, doing that play with that cast, Bradley leading it, 
working with Bradley made me a better actor, working with Alessandro, working, you know, with that entire cast from Williamstown to New York to London. It was so near and dear to me still. It's and lives forever. That's great. Deep in my soul. <laughs> You and Isabel did a third at the bookshop in 2017. Yes, I did, but that's, yeah, I have a, you know, the, the leads are the glorious, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then we've talked about some of the just industry challenges that you've run into where it's, it's we all at one time or another encounter jerks or assholes or whatever oh, with, sure, yeah. so you had your Harvey experience, then mm-hmm. now you're at work as Jane Davis, the Commerce Department <laughs> official on the fifth and sixth seasons of House of Cards on yeah. Netflix when Kevin Spacey goes down. How did you guys process that? Well, remember, I I had just done one season, so I, you know, I wasn't hit with the heavy load of that. I had just been on one season, but I, you know, you think of these people, this very tight family, many people's jobs at stake, people who have spent five years on a project. I'm thankful they did the right thing and came back, even though they had to cut the the season short. They did the right thing because every, the cast and crew should not have suffered, you know, because of someone else's follies. And I just think it's, was a remarkable thing that they pulled yeah. it together. And you were there for the next season And then I as well. came in on season, you know, I came back season yeah. six with, you know, I love Jane Davis. It's a, it's a, you know, Frank and Melissa wrote the hell out of that part. Yeah. I just had to learn, I had copious amounts of lines, but I honestly, I, this is not false modesty. I really just had to learn the lines. They were stunning. And I just had to learn them and show up. This brings us to 2018 and the character that I—I I mean, you've had a lot of great reviews in your career. I don't know. You can tell me if I'm off on this, but I don't think you've ever had better response than you've gotten for playing Adora, a woman who we learn has Munchausen by proxy syndrome, basically meaning she, in some way, gets a kick out of making other people feel they are sick. Well, it, you know, Munchausen is such a complicated and perverse disease in that it's it, it it is a mother that has i think extraordinary love for a child and an, an unbalanced love for a child and has the need for that child to stay close and has the need to be the savior and has so many psychological issues going um, back to her own childhood yes yeah. and she was you know, unfortunately, I think this is a show of generational violence, cyclical violence and uh, abuse. I mean, she was terribly abused by her mother. Mm-hmm. I tell that story at the end of her kind of one of my some of the most beautiful writing when I'm left in the woods by my mother at the very end of this series. And so, you know, I had to I had to come to a door in a, a very specific place. I I, th- I think I've said this to you before. I think we can never judge the, the characters we play because we won't. We can never really fulfill the great writing and the great actors that require us to be present. Because if we have some some preconceived notion or we have fear about who this character really is, if we're coming at then we're coming at it as an at an angle instead of full on. And. In this case, the opportunity to 
come at it at all was because Amy Adams was a yes. fan of yours. Yeah. She's a producer as well yes. as the woman at the center of Sharp Objects. And basically, along with you, of course, and I wondered, though, watching this, I never got to see you do Blanche Dubois at the Kennedy Center when you did that in 2004, but do you see any connective tissue oh, between, God. you do, between oh, Blanche yeah. and Adora? Yeah. What's I think I played Blanche for some reason, to, and then it prepared me for Adora. Is it just the sort of somebody being mentally un, a little they're, unstable? They're, well, they're very different, you know. But Gillian Flynn and the writers, Marty Knock, they have a a certain gothic. It's lyrical, and it is poetic realism in its own way. It's different from Tennessee Williams, but it is... They are kindred spirits, these characters, absolutely. They are women who are deeply damaged that can be judged from the outside. And they are people who have been ultimately adored as judged by the community in the end, but Blanche is judged by the community from the get-go. And they are both spiraling downward and... Blanche has that extraordinary moment. It makes me very sad when the young man, you know, is, kills himself. And Mitch, she's, you know, she says to Mitch at that, that incredible moment at the end of that huge scene, and she says, you know, sometimes there's God so quickly when she realizes, oh, this man is going to love her and help her. And, you know, I don't think Adora had anybody. To really help her and save her, and you don't think that the man who I, I is her husband at in the, the end, end, I think yeah. he, I think sadly he's a good man, but I think that often happens with Munchausen is they become part of the problem. They are not often they don't have any objectivity to step back and help. They become part of the deception. Yeah. So interestingly, yeah. I had found a few in one of the articles from before you ever had anything to do with sharp objects. You had said that one of your favorite movies is Gaslight, which is well, uh, I love anything in Ingrid Bergman, yeah. and I love her. <laughs> and that one and Suspicion certainly come to mind when yeah. you think about this one. But I want people to know how much prep goes into. You didn't sort of not that not that you ever just show up and and do it, but in this case, because of the mental component of the the challenges facing the character. What was the work that went in before you ever showed up? Well, the door was an unusual process. I had to actually kind of hold. I had to keep it. Um, uh, I had to keep it out of my head, keep it in my heart. I had to approach her as the best person in the community, the best person, the best mother, the best wife, mm -hmm. beautiful, caring, loving, living the true life in this gorgeous house. I had to be very careful not to let too much of the decay show. And so every day was about keeping her as much in the light as I could because the darkness was going to descend. And so every day I was I, the preparation I would do was to ha actually how to keep her high so that when I would go low, I knew so much low was coming. And to do this, though, you you found someone that had 
experienced Munchausen personally or, or had been a victim no, of it? Or someone I knew. Yeah. yeah. A, a, a psychiatrist I knew uh, okay. who I, I talked to a person who had, it was, um, it was tough. And it was tough. Is it, t- you know, sometimes, particularly with theater, I guess you go into the theater, you enter the, you walk in, you do your thing, and then you have to go home at the end of the day and you can sometimes presumably just get on with your life. Right. In this case, you guys were for months away from months, home, months. and I wondered if you could just drop it at the end of the day well, or if it did. You know, Amy is a consummate actress. She's, you know, really so, so stunning inside and out. And, and and she also was part of the preparation because I really have a genuine love for her just off camera and Eliza. So that all, you know, you have to take what's in front of you. And so I use the, the genuine love I have, even though I know I have that famous moment when I tell her, but she does, you know, she, her children and her family are everything yeah. to her. And so I I used the love I had for them in the ways I could. So every day I was on the set with Amy and Eliza was, was work, was my, was preparation because I knew I used how I genuinely felt for them every day. I would just, I was a sponge and they're, you know, such beautiful actresses. They're so available and ready and able, you know, and, uh, did you have to decide for yourself whether or not, I mean, I don't know if there was ever any doubt about it, but you know, the first child who died, was that the result of Adora? And did Adora know that and was covering it up? Or did it did it happen because of Adora and she didn't realize that it was because of her? Like, I assume you had to... I, I know re- what's happening. I've never shared. Never shared? Never shared. Because you think it would shade the way people just, view it? It just stays within me. Yeah. What happened to that child? But theoretically, let's just, just for the sake of conversation, if Adora did know and is covering it up, then isn't what you're doing... Playing a character, playing a character, essentially. Yes. Adora was Pirandellian. You know, she yeah. was a character within a character. and But often Munchausen, they are recreating a life within a life. And that's often what they do is they create these dramatic scenes to then be... So they are rather good actors. Yeah, yeah. And they have fooled many a doctor and and husbands and children and partners and... So, yes. You have said that the final installment of the series is, includes, quote, some of the toughest scenes I've ever played, close mm-hmm. quote. What made it that way? Is it just that we're now sort of seeing the full, you know, for the audience to first, for the first time, really seeing Adora doing what we have been aware she might have been doing all along? Well, just the the darkness that descends at the end to have to say certain things to Amy and Eliza and do certain things. It it is against every grain in your body. It's against every natural instinct. It's against every even though I don't have children, I, I there are many children I love more than life itself. It it's un, unconscionable behavior and so you have to really gird yourself. And so some of these scenes in that last scene of Amy in the bathtub and poisoning her, and um, they were just tough. They were just tough scenes, but but uh, this is what we want. I'm 59 years old. I, I've, I've done a lot, and I'm, I'm thankful that, that uh, Gillian and, and Marty and these great writers 
let me be so challenged. Yeah, and very appropriately celebrated a few months ago with the Golden Globe, now an Emmy nomination. (laughs) And I guess I just want to close with the question of, we always hear in this business that it's it gets harder for women, particularly as time goes by, and yet you seem to have the reverse trajectory here. So what's the secret to this, you know, just getting better and better as as time goes on? Well, I think there's many of us in, in this path now. Isn't that extraordinary? It We are no longer the exception. We are hopefully now the rule. You know, women in our late 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, people want to hire us. And it's a beautiful feeling. People want to make films and TV series and projects about women. And and look, we do need stories about 25-year-old women. Absolutely. They're interesting. They're sexy. They're amazing. But there's also a lot of life and we get better as we age as actors. So give us jobs because we, we'll, we hopefully will deliver for you. But, <laughs> um, but I think I'm one of many now, these women having this second act, so to speak. It's many of us. And I'm, it's, a, it's a heyday right now in Hollywood. And I'm just so damn thankful I'm on the train. <laughs> That's great. Well, great to see you again. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you, Scott. It's always a privilege. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.